Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I hope you had a, a great week this past week. I was reflecting on mine, and uh, this past week I was sitting on the lobby with our executive pastor. as one of our elders. He was up here, and he's been here since the very beginning. And we were sitting in the lobby just thanking God for what he's done in this church. And obviously just being in the building, uh, the fact that he's given us this place uh, without any debt is an incredible uh, blessing. That's a testimony only to him. But then we started talking about some of you and different lives that have been changed and the way that God has worked and really legitimately not having connecting people to Jesus for life change be a slogan on a wall, but a legitimate part of who we are. And then we started talking about some old stories. And one of them was about 10 years ago, uh, when it was John and I and just one other pastor on staff, and we decided we didn't know what we were doing. We needed some training. And so we were going to go to Atlanta for a church conference. We rented a car. I still remember it. It was a black Xterra. And we hopped in this black Xterra, and we drove to Atlanta. And we went to this conference. And I remember after one of the main sessions, they said, tonight's evening session is going to be at a different campus. And so we're in Atlanta, and they're in the one part of Atlanta, and they want us to drive to this other part of Atlanta. And they said, but... In between here and there, we're going to do a scavenger hunt. It's a competition to all of you that are here today. How many of you have been a part of a scavenger hunt before? Yeah, you go and look for like clues and you got to answer questions and different paths you go down. And so here's how we're going to judge you. It's going to be based on speed and accuracy. And I thought, this is incredible because I don't know how many of you knew my driving back then. I like to think I've been sanctified some since then. If you drive with me now, that I don't want to make you jealous at how godly I am in my driving now, but um, some of you are like, he's terrible. <laughs> but I'm not the same as I was 10 years ago. 10 years ago was even worse, but I prided myself on being like a pastor, but second calling NASCAR driver. And so you're blocked, that's fine. I'm going to figure it out. Like we're going to get around this and speed suggestions that were on the side of the road. I was like, my car goes way faster than that. Why do they call it a speed limit? I can exceed that. It's easy, watch. And, and so I thought, I'll get us there fast. And then John, if you know him, our executive pastor, he's all about the data. So he's got the accuracy part down. I was like, we can win this thing. And so we're heading through Atlanta, city. I didn't really know the city. And we're driving. He's calling his wife, asking her cultural questions that were on the sheet. We're trying to get different routes and see different city things. And we're flying. And we're trying, everybody's doing the same route because they're trying to do the same scavenger hunt. We end up at this other campus. And I don't know if you've ever parked a car before where you hit it and park before you really hit the brakes. <laughs> we hit that. And it was, it was a rental. Don't worry. And so we did that and <laughs> jump out of the car. And we run up to the judge's table. We slap the paper down. We were the first ones there. But it was also judging accuracy. As we're all turning our sheets in and these other churches are showing up, somebody yells, I don't know who is driving that black Xterra, but they're not a Christian. <laughs> like, hiding, like, I don't see, but, and then we won. We ended up winning the scavenger hunt. We were pumped about that with all my sin that was involved in the process. And, uh, and then after that, in our conversation, John and I told him that story, and then the meeting's done, and I started studying for this message, and I thought, how much is, is life like a scavenger hunt? And we talked about last week about how we're all in the same pursuit. We're all pursuing happiness. Whether you were here last week or not, you're pursuing happiness. It's something that every human being does. And we go down different paths, right? Like we, we look for different things. And there's different clues in life that maybe the career will do it for us. Or maybe our marriage. Or maybe if we had kids. Or maybe if we had this amount of money. Or maybe these goals and their financial goals or physical goals or their spiritual goals. And we think, if I had this, then I'd be happy. And then it's not working. And so we keep going towards the end. And, and we started this series last week talking about this pursuit of happiness. And we saw the data. In America, happiness is on the decline. Depression is on the rise. What we're trying is not working. Let me tell you this general proverbial truth. If you keep trying what you're trying, you keep getting what you're getting. 
And we started this series called Upside Down, and many people came last week expecting me to say what Jesus tells us is upside down. That's not what this series is about. A series about how this world is upside down. We live in a world that says that sin is normal and that righteousness is wrong or weird. And God, our creator, Jesus, preaches this sermon and tells us what we were created for, what he intended for us to live, and it's a pursuit that ultimately ends in true happiness. And so today, as we jump back into Matthew chapter 5, I want you to ask yourself the question, am I on the pathway to true happiness? We're all pursuing it, but am I on the pathway that Jesus talks about to true happiness? It's in Matthew chapter 5. We started reading last week, really laying a foundation for the series. Remember the context of what's happening is that Jesus is preaching a sermon, but he's at the pinnacle of his popularity. And the reason why is because he started, he had already preached a sermon. He started his teaching ministry in chapter 4 and verse 17 with really one word. And what the one word meant was, hey, you're going the wrong way. You're headed down the world's path. Stop. Come back, come back to God. And Jesus says it way more succinct than I do. He says, repent. That's the Bible word for stop. You're going the wrong way, come back. It's repent, why? Because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, because he's being sensitive to Jewish listeners, is writing in this book of Matthew, but it means the same thing, kingdom of God is at hand, it's near. It's with Jesus coming, and kingdom just means this. It's not a proximity, it's not like you draw a circle, like this is the kingdom of God, everything outside the circle. It's, it's God's rule and reign in our hearts. He's saying, it's at hand. As I've come, I'm inaugurating. I'm starting the kingdom of God. And he calls his first followers in verse 18 of chapter 4. And they drop their nets and they come follow him. And it's people that are committed to him. And I asked last week, what's your net? For the rich young ruler, it was money. For other people, different things. But it's the thing that's stopping you from committing your life to Jesus. So it keeps you in the crowd and stops you from being a real follower. And there are opponents there as well. And Jesus goes and it says in, in Galilee, he doesn't do this everywhere. Some of the miracles you read about in the Bible, it's like if Jesus were to go to Duke Hospital in the oncology department where the cancer patients are at and he heals one and he leaves and everybody else still has cancer. That happens. But in this case, it's like he healed the whole wing. He healed everybody in Galilee. And so you can imagine why he's popular because if he just, you had seizures and now you don't have seizures anymore? You couldn't walk and now you can walk? Like, you're hanging on everything this guy says. So then he starts to preach a sermon it says in, in Matthew chapter 5 that he, he goes up on a mountain, so he's higher than everybody else, but then he, he sits down. That's what a, what a teacher would do to explain the scriptures. And the first word out of his mouth is verse 3, first word. What does it say? Blessed. Some of your translations might say happy. It's the Greek word makarios. It's more than happiness like many of us think of. Many of us, when we think of happiness, it's like, I got invited to a barbecue and they got the kind of sauce I like. That's good. Or I got invited to a barbecue. Like, that's just good, Right? Or I got a day off of work or whatever happened. And, but those circumstances change. And oftentimes that happiness goes away. The kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about is the kind that you can be mourning the greatest loss you've ever experienced in your life, but you still have this inner joy that can't be touched by those circumstances. That's makarios. And then what he says, it sounds pretty upside down from this world, but it's actually the way that kingdom is meant to be lived. Look at what he says. Verse 3, we covered last week. Blessed, makarios, happy are the poor in spirit. And remember that is not about financial poverty, although it's hard to be financially wealthy and experience poverty, but it's this kind of poverty, poverty of spirit, because there's temptation to trust in so many other things. It's about realizing you don't bring anything to the table. 
It's about seeing the world the right way, that God did everything for our salvation, and we grow in this deep dependence upon him. That's what spiritual poverty is. Poverty is spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God in their lives. And then these ones we didn't cover last week. We'll look at these next three today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what we have here is we've read the first four just now. I told you some structure last week when I was talking about the the message and how Matthew, when he writes down this introduction to the sermon that Jesus is preaching, uses what literary people call inclusio, where the first statement and the last statement are the same, which means everything in between connects them. And if you read verse 3, it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Read verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything in there is about the kingdom. What does it look like to live under the rule and reign of God? Let me tell you another structural piece. Each one of these blessing statements, or some people call them beatitudes, which is just a Latin word that means blessing, each one of them builds on the other one. And so they become increasingly more intense as we go through these. And then also, they're broken down into quads, two groups of four. I told you last week there are eight of them. And so the first group of four is vertical. The second group of four is horizontal. And what I mean by that is the first group of four statements, the ones we just read, are all about our relationship with God. The next four about all how we relate with one another, kind of like when Jesus says, love God, that's the greatest commandment, love each other. That's the second, and it builds on the first. Because you've got to love God first before you can truly love people. And then also, as you're looking at this, don't forget there are three different types of people in the audience. And we're going to notice this as we go through the sermon more and more, is that there's those followers, the people that are committed to Jesus, and there's the crowd, the people that are neutral with Jesus. And that's what the majority of churches are made up of, by the way. They haven't committed their lives to Jesus, but they think he might have good advice for their business, for their inheritance disputes, for their marriage, and they want their feet healed if they got feet diseases, and they want their eyes healed if they got eye diseases, and they want, they want a blessing from Jesus, but they're not willing to commit their lives to him. And that's what the majority of Jesus' crowd was, and he knows that. His primary audience are the followers, but he knows the crowd's listening in, and so continually he'll say, this is what it really looks like to live in the rule and reign of God. You're invited in. And we're going to see, and it's going to get more intense when we get to chapter 5 and verse 20, the opponents are there as well. Opponents are people that may use the name of Jesus, might look like the most righteous people of the entire day, but they haven't given their hearts to Jesus. And the way you really see it in their life is their pride. And so they're fighting Jesus, and they don't know it. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we see here these different statements in this vertical relationship with God that are said. They seem so contrary to our world. The first one is this, happy are the sad. Happy are the sad. Where do you get that? Well, look at verse 4. Blessed, that makarios, happy, true happiness, are those who mourn, sorrowful, sad, for they shall be comforted. So happy are the sad. That's a real paradox. You want upside down? This might be the most clearly stated upside down statement in the Beatitudes. Happy and sad are contradictory. How is that possible? That's a paradox. A statement that seems to self-contradict. I looked up a definition of a paradox this week, and this is what I got. Oxford Dictionary online said, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And so the question we gotta ask ourselves, other than just hearing, oh, that's not right, that's wrong, how can that even be? Like, here's here's the beatitude of our world, by the way. Blessed are the wealthy, for they have lots of money. Blessed are the beautiful, because people admire them. Blessed are the popular, 
because they get lots of likes and follows and retweets. But if you follow the world's path, you get the world's answers. And we've already seen that's not working. But if we follow Jesus' path, we get our Creator's answers, which is what we were created for. So what does He say? Happy are the sad? Is that true? How could that be true? Well, then what we need to do is investigate it. So what is he saying? What is he saying here when he says, happy are the sad? Well, the word for sad there, or mourning, or sorrow, there are nine words for mourning in the Greek language. The word that's used here is the most intense word for mourning that could be used. So let me ask you this question. Everybody's answer will be different. What's the most intense time of mourning you've ever experienced? Think about that. For some of you, you've come to a point in your life where a dream is not going to be fulfilled and you had to mourn that loss. Some of you have had breakups with people. Some of you lost money, jobs. But probably for most people, the most intense mourning is the loss of a loved one. Most of you here, just looking at your faces, have probably lived long enough to lose a friend or a relative, somebody that you've loved. That's the hardest kind of loss. Think about it in my own life. The first person that I lost that I loved was my grandmother when I was in elementary school, and I remember weeping at her funeral, but then when she just wasn't there anymore, it was so final feeling, so official. And then since then, some of you have seen me mourn. Some of you have seen, you know, Alan even mentioned my father-in-law. It was the first service that we did together as a church in here was my father-in-law's funeral a little bit over a year and a half ago. I wept. I think about them almost every day. It wasn't like you mourned in a moment and then it's, I mean, you marked my life. I was hanging out with some friends last night. They were remembering the loss of a guy who was in my small group at one time. His wife was in our first service. His name's Kim Moore. Her husband, about three years ago now, three years and a day, her husband accidentally shot himself. And if you were part of our church then, you remember him. And sitting in the living room with his now widow, Kim, and his kids, they were in shock. And then weeping. And then as they learn things, they grieve more. And then as months go by, there's different waves of emotions that come. The loss of a loved one is the most intense kind of mourning you can experience. That's the word that's used here. Happy, blessed are the mourning. They're not happy because of the mourning. They're happy because of the comfort. But what they're mourning isn't a loved one. Now, I believe that there's a general truth to this passage that when you're mourning... God meets you in that, and he will comfort you. And so there is a promise there, but when you look at this passage in context, it's not talking about mourning the loss of a loved one, even though it uses the word for that. The context is mourning over sin. Because remember chapter 4, verse 17, stop, repent of what? Stop going towards what? Stop going your own way. Stop following the world's way. That's called sin, when it's contrary to God's plan, when it's opposite of what God tells you to do. That's sin. Sin's not just like sometimes we think naughty, like stole a cookie or lied or committed adultery or like we put it on a scale of naughty behaviors. It's anything that's contrary to the will of God. There's a reason why God thinks you're going the wrong direction, turn back. It's because you're sinning. Our context is one of sin. But then remember, each one of these builds on one another too. So the one right before it was poverty of spirit. That's recognizing the only thing you bring to your relationship with God is sin. And then he deals with the sin. You don't earn your salvation. You couldn't even believe on your own. Ephesians chapter 2, it's a gift from God. But that's the mental part of it. Poverty of spirit is seeing things accurately. 
Remember, don't accidentally buy a Hanukkah shirt. You don't see things accurately. You make mistakes. That's the mental part. What happens as we build is we get now to the emotional part that we would actually weep, mourn over our sin. That's foreign to us because that's not what we naturally do with sin. Read the Bible. What we naturally do with sin, we hide sin. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they sin, they hide from God. How do you hide from God? You can't just have x-ray vision. He knows everything, okay? You can't hide from God. But we hide sin. Some of you did it today. Maybe I'll step on your toe right now. Listen to this. Some of you are out in the lobby today, and you were fighting with your wife in the car on the way here, yelling at your kids, angry at the world. Somebody comes by. This is the day the Lord has made. If you didn't laugh, you're the one. No, it's like we just, we, we come up, but we don't want people to know the darkness. And stuff. The Bible says the reason we hide our sin, it's why we love darkness and we don't love the light. And I was thinking about that this week, and I don't know how many of you, this might be an uncomfortable analogy for some. The first service hated it, and so I'm just going to keep doing it anyways. Um, I was thinking about this week about how we don't like the light. How many of you have woken up in the middle of the night, had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? All right, good. A couple of honest people are on that side, apparently. And then you back in the back of the high end. I see that. Um, I was thinking about how it happens at my house is our bathroom's attached to our bedroom. And I've been married almost 20 years now. I know that I do not want to turn the light on in my room. That will not make for a good marriage, okay? And so I don't do that. My wife did not want to be woken up. And so I go over to the bathroom and I close the door and then I turn the light on. And then I don't know if you do this or not, but a lot of times I'll look in the mirror. That's a bad idea. You know, look at them. It's like, what are you? What did I do in my dream? Like hair sticking out of the side of my head. I'm like, is it windy? Like what happened there? Got purple underneath my eyes. Did somebody punch me in the face? Like what's going on? Nothing looks good. I don't have a corduroy pillow, but I always got these lines like on the side of my face. It's like it's a mess. Then I'll go back in the bedroom, lay back in the bed. Oh, I forgot to turn the light off in the bathroom. And then what you realize is, you know what? I can just go back to sleep, not think about it here in the darkness. But the closer I get to that light, the more exposed I become. The closer I get to that mirror, the more I see. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. And that the Bible is like a mirror. And the closer we get to that, now isn't the goal in the Christian life that we get closer to Jesus, but here's the reality. The closer you get to Jesus, the more exposed your sin becomes. And so what our tendency, our natural tendency is then to not get close to Jesus, because we want to think highly of ourselves, so we hide our sin. In fact, that's why they killed Jesus. The people that are there in the audience that are his opponents that have this outward religion, they hated this about Jesus. It says this in John chapter 3, verse 19. So you might know verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes on him will have eternal life. John 3, 17, he didn't come to judge the world, but not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But listen to verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light, that's Jesus, has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil, because they loved their sin when they loved Jesus. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So our natural tendency is not to mourn over our sin, it's to hide it or minimize it. At least I didn't. Somebody else did. You know, you hear this sometimes, somebody gets fired from a job and they, didn't, they weren't a great employee, but they'll be like, but if you knew my boss, and I've said this to, to people, friends before in the church, and they say this, so... So your boss's sin makes your sin okay. And they always say no. But what they then go down to explain is, because of his big sin, my, do you see how small my sin is? Or sometimes it happens in marriages, when marriages fall apart. It's like, I wasn't a great husband, but you should see my wife's sin. Like, if you're, let me magnify it for you. We minimize sin. 
Oh, we rationalize sin and why it's okay? But you don't know my story. Well, no one knows your exact story, but I'm gonna tell you what. Jesus was tempted in every way as you were tempted. And I've had similar experiences to some of you. And so Satan uses that statement to put us in isolation. But you don't understand this, and, but then because I, and there's this situation, and at least I never, and then we rationalize, and we become, we minimize, we rationalize, we become desensitized to sin. Many times as believers, with people that claim to have renewed minds, we're laughing at things that should cause our hearts to break because we become desensitized to things that break God's heart. But do, does our heart break mourn over our sin? And how does that happen? Well, go back to when I asked you that question. When's the time you've experienced the greatest grief in your life? It's over the loss of something or someone, probably someone. And so if we're going to mourn over our sin, is it, are we mourning because we love that sin so much and we have to let it go? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. So what happened, as a follower, remember his primary audience, he's sitting down, the disciples are at his feet. His audience is followers of Jesus. Because you sin doesn't mean you're no longer a Christian. You have union, you are in Christ, the Bible says. No one can take that away. You're a child of God. You're a son or daughter of the king. That happens, but what can be taken away is communion with Christ. What you lose is the intimacy of your relationship. I can be friends with you and never talk to you. We have a friendship, but we don't have intimacy. And what you have to see is how precious it is to have this relationship with Christ. And you've got to experience, taste, and see that the Lord is good. The joy, the, hap- the makarios happiness of walking with Jesus so closely that when sin starts to break that relationship, you grieve. Not because you don't get to do the sin anymore. Because what you're losing is your intimacy with Jesus. And so how do I get to that spot? Here's what I would challenge you to do. If you love Jesus, and I just ask you, do you love, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you love him? Would you ever do something to hurt somebody that you love? Why don't you focus on the cross a little bit and realize that it was your sin that nailed him to the cross? It was because of that sin that you minimize and that you hide and that you rationalize and you become desensitized to that he had to be forsaken by his father. And would you ever intentionally hurt someone you love? But then we, like it's no big deal and he's good with it and he just looks the other way and no, it breaks his heart. Father, will you break our hearts for what breaks your heart? It's just, you have a longing for relationship with us. And oftentimes we go after this world. Repent. Come back, come back, come back. But the, the mourning is not why you're blessed. The sadness is not why you're blessed. It's because of the comfort. Happy are the sad, for they will be comforted. Happy, blessed, makarios are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What's the comfort? The comfort is in knowing this. Not only will he meet you in the pain, but he promises forgiveness every time. If you'll confess, he is faithful. He is just. Because of his character, he will cleanse you and you can be free. The happiness, the makarios, comes because of the comfort, but the mourning comes before the comfort. Do you mourn your sin? Not only that, but you look at the next one, verse 5 here. It's not only happier the sad, but happier the selfless. Let me read it to you. Blessed, makarios, happy, truly happy, are the meek. So I've translated meek as selflessness. That doesn't sound like what most of us say. For they shall inherit the earth. I want to call it selflessness here. Because a lot of people think of meekness as being timid maybe, uh, friendly, amiable is a word that some people might use. But when you look at it, it's really about getting over yourself. 
And I, I was reading one guy, an old preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said lots of words about it. But you're not concerned about this, you're not concerned about it. Let me summarize what he said in a whole paragraph. It's people who get over themselves. Now that's hard. Because we live in a very self-focused culture, don't we? We invented the selfie. Need I say more? Right? I read an article back in 2009 that talked about how narcissism, which is self-centeredness, is epidemic in America. Now think about epidemic as like when, if there was a disease spreading through the America. That's what they were saying. Like it's, people are addicted to themselves in America. I read an article this week that somebody from the first service actually posted on their social media. And um, I told them afterwards, I said, I didn't call you out for this because um, I didn't know if that was okay or not. And she said, oh, it's totally fine. I think that we need to see it. In fact, I was going to send it to you. And I thought, why are you going to send it to me personally? Um, but it's a satirical article from uh, some of you have read before the Babylon Bee. And so it's not true. That's what that means. It didn't really happen. But let me read you what it said. I said in the article um, that according to reports coming out of a church in Arizona, first-time visitor Brittany Wilson remains unsure about why she needed this Jesus guy in her life after the pastor spent the entire Sunday sermon reiterating how awesome, amazing, unique, and special she is. The message was super encouraging. It was all about how I need to let the goodness within me shine and just do me without worrying about all the haters. Wilson said after the service, but... She said, then the pastor said, I needed Jesus out of the blue. Like what? It made no sense. I'm not sure what he has to offer that I don't based on how wonderful the pastor said I am. She went on in the article to say, I will not be going back to church there. She was offended that the pastor would say she needs Jesus. And the reason why it's somewhat humorous is because there's some truth to it. Because if there wasn't truth, we'd go, that's ridiculous. Why would anyone think that? But we know in such a self-absorbed, self-centered culture that being selfless is what's opposite. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here because the meek person is the person, like as us as Christians, we become meek. It's getting to the point where you go, I'm not impressed with myself anymore. I don't need to impress you with myself anymore. I'd like you to see God through my life. But that's a mark of maturity. There's a reason why it's not the first one here. Poverty and spirit comes first. Mourning over our sin comes next. And then we see this positive characteristic that comes out, this meekness. Meekness has been defined by some people as strength under control. In fact, the word that's used here for meek in, in Greek literature is actually used of breaking a wild animal, oftentimes a colt. And so I texted this week some friends in the church that ride horses and race horses and different things like that because I don't know much about horses. And I asked them, I said, well, tell me about breaking a horse. And I, I learned some people don't even like that language, so they like training. One person wrote back and said, there's really two ways to train or break a horse. One is harsh, one is mild and gentle. One, you get them to obey out of fear. The other one, you get them to trust. You think about God breaking us, training us, growing us in maturity. Which one do you think he uses? See, there are only two people in the Bible that are actually highlighted for their meekness. One is Moses. In the Old Testament, it says he's the meekest man in the earth. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. And you look at Moses' life. Well, Moses, he threw down the stone tablets. Moses, he stood toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. Moses, he crossed the Red Sea. Doesn't seem quite as wimpy as many of us think of meekness. But what you notice in Moses' life is when he gets upset, it's not because of personal attack. Moses is upset because people are shaming the glory of God. The person we see in the New Testament, he's not a wimp either. His name is Jesus. Jesus turns the tables over. 
Jesus stands toe-to-toe with the most powerful people of his day. Jesus defeats Satan in the wilderness when tempted. Jesus defeats death. And what does he say? Matthew chapter 11, listen to what he says. You want to know how he's going to train you? Matthew chapter 11, I quote this verse all the time in the NIV because that's what I memorize it in. Here it is in the King James. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. The NIV says gentle. Same idea. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye, oh, I love King James, right? Who says that? No one says that. Anyway, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oftentimes I come to that passage and I quote it to you and I'm thinking about how some of you are worn out and you're tired and he gives you rest for your soul. But we can oftentimes miss he's teaching us not how to rest. He says, come and learn from me. What, what, what? I am meek. What is meek? What is, what is what my friend shared with me when I asked him about training a horse, breaking a horse. Is the horse doesn't lose its strength. The horse doesn't lose its speed. The horse doesn't lose its power. The horse doesn't lose its abilities. The horse's will is broken. Because on its own, it's unyieldy. And, and the goal is to get the horse to trust the, so they don't flee in fear. They, they trust the trainer. And they use their ability their strength, their speed, their whatever it is, in a profitable way. And so as God's training us, sometimes people have called meekness strength under control. As he's training us, he's showing us how to use the abilities he's given us, the position he's given us, the power he's given us, the talents he's given us for his glory. We've got to learn to trust him. And he's gentle in the process of teaching us this. This is one of those things that I'm not going to be able to give you a formula today and say, go try these three steps. We'll report back next week and see how meekness goes. This is a long process. But do you know when you see it played out in somebody's life? When they have the opportunity to seek revenge and they don't. I heard a a pastor in California, his name's Greg Laurie, he was teaching on meekness, and they live right by the beach, and so there's a bunch of surfers in the church and stuff. And I know that we're by the beach, kind of. If you read the Chamber of Commerce, we're two hours from the beach and two hours from the mountains. But we're not, like, right on the beach. So I wasn't sure if this would work in this illustration, but I'm going to use it anyways. Uh, here it goes. Uh, he said, meekness is like if you're on the beach and a bully comes up and kicks sand in your face, and you don't beat him up, if you don't beat him up because you're a wimp, that's not meekness. That's fear. But... If you're a UFC fighter and a bully kicks sand in your face and you don't beat him up, that's meekness because you had the power to do so and you did not. I think one of the best examples in the Bible is a guy named Joseph that you read about in Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. And what happens is when we meet Joseph in the Bible, you can read about his birth in in chapter 30, but when you really get to know his story in chapter 37 in Genesis, he's 17 years old, he's young, he's cocky, he's gifted, God's got a plan for his life, and he's not afraid to tell everybody that. And so nobody likes him, except for his dad. He's his dad's favorite because of who his mom is. And so his dad buys him special gifts, buys him even a coat that he wears, and it just bothers people. People are annoyed. And he's got 11 brothers, and they don't like him either. Because, you know, you met those people, they're like, they're really good at stuff, but they're not afraid to tell you. Nobody likes that person. If you are that person, I'm sorry, nobody likes you. But we're glad that you're here today. (laughs) And so Joseph, he's doing that, 17 years old, young, brash, arrogant. And one day he goes out to see his brothers, and they want to kill him. But one of his brothers says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. And they throw him in this pit. And then when that, that brother's not paying attention, they come up with this idea, let's sell him into slavery. It's the first story of human trafficking in the Bible. He gets sold into slavery. God does have his hand on his life, uses him with the new people that he's with, ends up working for a guy named Potiphar, and everything's going great as he's running Potiphar's house, 
except for Potiphar's wife really likes him. And she's hitting on him. And he's young and attractive. And then he says no. And he says no every time. And he flees. And then she lies and says that he did some stuff that he didn't do. And he ends up in jail anyways for years. And then after being used and forgotten in jail, he gets out. He eventually becomes the prime minister of Egypt because he told them there was going to be a famine and came up with a financial plan so they'd be prepared for the famine so they'd have food to be able to distribute to their people and then people from around the world would come to them and they'd be like a world leader. And so as the prime minister, he's got incredible power, power of life and death, power of giving food, not giving food. One day, now we're talking 13 years later, he's 30 years old, his brothers are standing there before him. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He gives them multiple tests in their lives. They don't realize who he is. But then in chapter 45, he starts weeping uncontrollably. He sends everybody else out except for his brothers. And he falls before them and says, I'm, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. He's got the power to kill them. Listen to what he says. Genesis chapter 45. He says, Verse 4, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me. God sent you or they sold you? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Whose life? Your life, Joseph, or their lives? Mm Mm-hmm. The dreams are actually coming true, not the way you thought it was going to come true. The one you arrogantly were boasting about is happening right here in this moment as they bow down before you, asking for food, and you rule over them. But you're a different kind of ruler now than you were then. Because I told you the story of Joseph two or three minutes. You read it in the Bible, it's 14 chapters, so obviously I left out some details. But it was a long time. If you read all the way to chapter 50, it's a really long time and the Bible leaves out some details. But he was a real person. So you don't mean to tell me that when Joseph got into prison that he wasn't thinking to himself, God, where were you? I did what you wanted me to do, and now I end up here? Like, I didn't touch If I had touched that woman, I'd be still good. I'd still have my job, everything. If I would have sinned, I would have gotten the end outcome that I wanted. What are you doing? So I'm faithful to you, and I end up here? You don't think he's angry at God? You don't think he's doubting God? You don't think he's upset with God? And then for years, and then to get used and forgotten in the jail for two more years just to sit there? You don't think he doubted? What do you think God was doing? Because we get to zoom out of his life and look at it. We can see he's training him for meekness. He's breaking him from his own will. He's preparing him for this moment when he stands there with his brothers. Some of you, some of you God's training you right now. And he's taking you through difficult times. And let me say to those of you who have friends that this is happening, would you, would you be patient? Would you be patient enough with yourself and with the Lord that you don't have to jump in and fix everything for them? That the temptation sometimes for Christians when people are going through difficult times is to tell them all the truths that are true, but they seem so trite in the moment. Would you just let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit? If they're a follower of Jesus, God's going to leave. They have doubts. You don't have to fix all their doubts in a text message. You don't have to fix all their problems in that moment. Let the Lord walk with them and you walk. And when the moment's right, you can share truth. But you don't, don't have this compulsion to like, I'm not a good Christian if I don't say this thing. No, trust God because here's where meekness comes from, resting in the sovereignty and goodness of God. 
and you have to walk through difficulty in order to get there. The greatest place I think that you see it is in places like Joseph when people forgive because you have an opportunity then to avenge and you realize vengeance is the Lord's. As God wants to avenge you, he will, avenge, he will work that out. I'm gonna forgive you because that's what we're commanded to do as forgiven people. And so some of you here today, the application of this is that you're wielding your ax and waiting for your moment and sharpening it to, and maybe you just need to forgive and let the sovereign God handle it the way he's handled all the other details in your life. Happy are the meek, the selfless, because they're now free to serve others. And they will receive an inheritance. All oh, the earth is yours, the Lord says, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Some of us, we miss it because we keep grasping because we're not meek. And then the next one we'll look at today is happy are the hungry. What are they hungry for, though? Happy are the hungry, and verse 6, blessed, makarios, are those who hunger and thirst. That's a strong word for desire, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. <laughs> I think we all here know what it's like to hunger and thirst. Think about the time when you've been most hungry or most thirsty, and some of you are like, right now, would you stop talking? You're blocking me. <laughs> Probably not right now. Probably most of us can skip a meal or two. But you think about what do you, like you ever crave a food, you ever want something really good, and then somebody offers you something you don't like? Like for me, it's cauliflower. I hate cauliflower. Hey, it's terrible. I talked about it before, and one time I went to dinner, sitting on the front row today with our, one of our elders, Matt Nyhoff. He took me to dinner. He's the biggest foodie I know. And we went to this Indian restaurant, and he had me eat this, what do you, how do you pronounce it? Gabot, gab something? Gab of something. I'll never get it right anyway, so he's like, you just go talk. And it's this like barbecue sauce on broccoli. It was amazing. I loved it. And then, I, didn't, I don't know if I told you this, but I went back to get it again, and I threw up all over the place. And so I don't like cauliflower. I had a bad experience with cauliflower, okay? Some of you, when I read to you, hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's like hunger and thirst, yeah, I have a strong desire, but not for righteousness. Because some of you have had a bad experience with righteousness. Some of you have been told that righteousness is these certain behaviors that God hates in your life, and you got to cut those things out. And here's the problem. Here's where the opponents, this is how they preach religion. The opponents of Jesus is they go after the results. They go after the outward stuff. But do you notice in all these beatitudes that Jesus is going after the heart? The poor in spirit, those who are mourning, those who are meek, these are inside transformations that then work themselves out, that hunger and thirst for. It's not the kind of righteousness many of us think of. Because some of you, when you think of righteousness, you think, well, isn't it like Christians aren't allowed to drink? And then you read your Bible and you're like, Jesus made alcohol? Oh, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> or Christians aren't allowed to go to movies. Or Christians aren't allowed to, whatever, wherever you grew up in the country, probably changed what it was that was naughty. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the behavior, but he goes after the heart because he's not trying to conform your behavior to some behavior modification. He wants your heart to belong to him. And so I think about my, own, my wife. My wife grew up in the school where all the, like, basically everything was wrong. Anything you did was wrong. And girls, women, were not allowed to wear pants. That was naughty. And so all of you have pants on, shame on you. I'm so mad at you today. And Just kidding. I don't care. But she wasn't allowed to wear pants. And it was such a big deal. She was a cheerleader, so she wore a skirt as a cheerleader. And we, we were in Michigan. In Michigan, it's like 80 below all the time. Okay, that's just the way it is in Michigan. It was the middle of the winter. She was cheerleading for a basketball game. And so on the way, to, for, not during the game, on the way from the locker room to the bus, she put pants on under her skirt. Then on Monday, she got called into the principal's office. The principal said, one of the parents said that you had pants on under your skirt. And I said to my wife when she told me that, I was like, you should have said, I want to know who that parent is. I want to know why they were looking up my skirt. <laughs> Bring them in here. We'd like to have a talk. 
but that was, that was naughty. That was, see, righteous people. And what it teaches people to actually do, it's not that you even don't like the, the naughty things. You can't do them in front of the wrong people. It creates a heart that's very hard towards the Lord. And what Jesus is going for is not that. He's going for your heart. So what does he mean by righteousness? Because later in, in this very book, in Matthew, in chapter 23, he says, woe to you Pharisees. Wait, the Pharisees, they tithe. They didn't just tithe. Like they tithe, if they grew a little basil in their garden, they'd chop the basil up and take a tenth of it and drop it in the offering plate. They don't want to miss on tithing. Like they were doing all, they did everything right. So when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, people are blown away. And, and what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23 is, woe to you. You clean the outside of the cup, you don't clean the inside. He says, first clean the inside, then the outside will be clean. That'll, your behavior will change if your heart changes, and that's the kind of righteousness he's going after here. Because what he's talking about when he says righteousness here is not behavior. You go through the sermon as a whole and he uses righteousness multiple times. He's talking about a desire for the will of God. And so I ask you, follower of Jesus, and the crowd, you can listen in. Enemies, you can listen in. But if you're a follower of Jesus, do you want to do God's will? Do you want what he wants for your life? That's his will, his desire. It's what he desires for you. He's your creator. Don't you think he knows what's best? And well, let me just ask you this. Have you ever had a meal just laid out for you? Like you didn't have to do anything. It was just right there. Maybe Thanksgiving. You went to somebody's house. They even knew how to use cranberry sauce. It was amazing. You just showed up and started eating. I had an experience uh, about a week, about 10 days ago. Uh, Shannon was gone with the girls. And I was leaving the office that day, and one of the pastors said to me, what are you doing tonight? And Shannon's gone. And I said, oh, I'm just going to go home. I've got a couple projects to do. About 15 minutes later, his wife text messaged me and says, I heard you're going to be alone for dinner. Why don't you come to our house? And I decided not to use, you know, the Southern's like, oh, no, that's good. I'm good. Everything's good. Instead, I actually told him what I was going to do. I said, you know, i got some closets I want to clean out tonight, and so I'm going to do that, and I'm kind of a task-oriented person, but I appreciate you offering. Thank you so much. A couple minutes later, I get another text message. He says, you're going to pick closets over spending time with us? <laughs> you guilt much? <laughs> and uh, so I texted back, and I said, I'll be there. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. So I show up. We joked about them guilting, all that stuff. And then I sit down to eat. And I don't know what you usually eat as a meal at your house, but I sat down, and they had steak with a side of crab cakes. And then they had these potatoes. They had done some stuff. They had some, this just amazing potatoes. I don't know what they had on them. It was amazing. And these vegetables. And then for dessert, they had, it was like a restaurant. It had multiple options for dessert. You do that at your house. We don't do that at our house. Anyway, they got cheesecake, apple crisp with ice cream on it. Like, sure, yes. How about yes? <laughs> I didn't have to do a thing. The meal was just right there. Follower of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know the will of God? It's the word of God. If you long for the will of God, hunger and thirst for righteousness, the will of God, then you will hunger and thirst for the word of God. Because what happens is you're not going to the Bible so you can, I need to know these facts about Joseph's life. I need to memorize the sermon that Jesus, no, God, what do you want to say to me? Because it's how you will reveal your character, your goodness, your sovereignty. And then God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That means that these words that were written 2,000 years ago can speak right into the millisecond of your life right now. It's living. And active. And it's like a mirror. It'll show you yourself. And it's a revelation of God. It'll show you his character. So you feast on it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this message today? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you rejoice in knowing that you're on the path to true happiness. Now it's sometimes a painful path. Poverty, mourning, and it will transform your life. He will change you. He loves you like you are. He's not going to leave you there. Become meek, selfless, 
that your desires will even change, that you'll want what He wants for you, when right now today you might be afraid of that. And so what do you do? What do you do? Well, some of you need to to realize how valuable your intimacy with Jesus really is and mourn your sin. Some of you might need to forgive somebody. Some of you need to start feasting on God's word. Some of you are in the crowd, you're just watching this, you're just seeing this, and you're like, I don't know if I want Jesus. Would you trust him today? If not, why not? At least walk out of here with that answer today. What's stopping you from trusting Jesus today? Maybe you're afraid. That's, a, that's an honest answer. Maybe it's sin. You don't want to let go of it yet. You value your sin more than you value Jesus. At least know, know your answer, like the rich young ruler when he walked away sad. And some of you are opponents to Jesus. You've got one response throughout the next several weeks we'll be in this series. Repent. Repent of your religion and give your heart to Jesus Christ. 